Uh, we're continuing this series on the book of Nehemiah, and um, we've done chapter one and chapter two, and we've looked at this man, Nehemiah, who basically was a butler uh, in fairly comfortable situation in some ways, um, and butler to the king Artaxerxes, and he was an exile living out of Jerusalem, but then he hears that Jerusalem is a city laid to waste, that the, uh, the walls are broken down, and it's a place in need of repair and restoration. And he senses his call upon his life to go back uh, to Jerusalem and to rebuild this wall. And what we find, though, with Nehemiah, he doesn't just rush at this job that he's been given to do, but I think what we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2 was that he made a priority of prayer, of actually stopping, waiting, praying to see what God would do. And, and it's an encouragement to us, I think, for us to pray and to see what God will do. And so we now come in chapter 3, where uh, Nehemiah has left this place of exile, of Susa, and he's back in Jerusalem. And chapter 3 is basically a whole list of peculiar names and uh, of people in their families who helped Nehemiah to build the wall and to bring restoration. And it wasn't just about the restoration of, of the, the city, uh, but it was also about the ongoing restoration of the people of God in that place. So as we come to look at this text, shall we, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the Bible, and we recognize that within it there are some things that don't always make a lot of sense. But we pray that as we look at this chapter 3 today, and also that text from Matthew, that, that the lessons in there the principles in there might echo down through the centuries to us today in Holy Trinity Guernsey in 2023. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may have heard uh, of a chap called Alfredo Pareto, and uh, he lived in 1896 in Italy. He was an economist, and, and he put forward this theory that for many events or actions, 80% of the effects came from 20% of the causes. And so um, he discovered that 80% at that time of the land that was owned in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. Uh, go into his back garden, don't ask me how he did this, he sounds a bit sad, but uh, he worked out that 20% of the pea pods that he grew uh, contained 80% of the peas that he harvested. And this 80-20 split became known as the Pareto Principle. People have heard of it before, and I know some of you are um, big into maths, and so you may not agree with it at all. It's just a theory. Anything I've, I say here comes from Wikipedia. Don't ask me to, <laughs> don't ask me to quote any other sources. Uh, but basically, it's seen as this um, common rule of thumb. So apparently, in, in a business, you'll find that 80% of your sales will come from 20% of your customers. 80% of complaints come from 20% of your customers, too. When it comes to sport, apparently, it's been shown uh, that 20% of athletes win 80% of the competitions. When it comes to crime, 80% of the crimes are committed by 20% of criminals. Uh, some people have also said that this Pareto principle can be applied to the church as well, to a local church context, and saying that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't think that that is the case here at all. It's more like 1% uh, do, no, not really. Uh, but <laughs> it, I would say it is, a, it is a joy and a privilege to be part of a church 
where so many people uh, play their part in all kinds of different ways. And for that, I'm hugely grateful. So I think Pareto's principle kind of falls down when it comes to us. But when it comes to Nehemiah and the rebuilding of this wall in Jerusalem, uh, again, the Pareto principle doesn't really stand up in terms of 20% of the remnant doing 80% of the work of building the wall. But what we find is, is that the vast majority of the people who have been in Jerusalem all the time of the exile or have gone back there, uh, actually alongside many who don't even live in Jerusalem at all, all kinds of people get involved in the work of rebuilding the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 3, it's basically this long list of people who just get stuck in to the work that needs to be done. And as I've been looking at this text this last week, that's one of the first things that has struck me, that actually everyone has a part to play in the life of the community. The flip side of that is sometimes within the church, uh, we can sometimes give an impression that actually members of the body of Christ, that everyone has their, his or own special gift, and that if we all use the gifts that we've been given and play to our strengths, then the body of Christ, the community of the church, would work well. And there is, of course, some truth within that. We find that in the scriptures. Think particularly of 1 Corinthians 12, where the Apostle Paul talks about different gifts that are given to people uh, that they can exercise within the body of Christ. And playing to your strengths is actually a good principle to work from. I'm reading a book at the moment called Leader, uh, Know, Love and Inspire Your People. And, um, and in it, they've got this story uh, called Why Fish Shouldn't Climb Trees. Listen up. Once upon a time, the animals decided they must do something heroic to meet the problems of a new world. So they organized a school. They adopted an activity curriculum consisting of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. To make it easier to administer the curriculum, all the animals took part in the subjects. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, he was better than his instructor. But he made only passing grades in flying, and he was very poor at running. Since he was slow in running, he had to stay after school and he had to drop swimming in order to practice his running. That was kept up until his webbed feet were so badly worn he was only average in swimming. But average was acceptable in the school, so nobody worried about that except the duck. The rabbit started at the top of the class in running, but had a nervous breakdown because of so much after-school work that he had to make up in terms of swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing until he developed frustration in the flying class where his teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the treetop down. He also developed cramps in his legs from overexertion, so he got a C in climbing and a D in running. The eagle was a problem child, was disciplined severely. In the climbing class, he beat all the others to the top of the tree, but he did insist on using his own way to get there. At the end of the year, an abnormal frog that could swim exceedingly well and also run, climb, and jump quite far had the highest average scores and won the school prize. So the moral of the story is let the duck swim, the rabbits run, and the eagles fly. We don't want the school of average ducks. And there are times when we focus on what we can't do rather than what we can do. As it said, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. And so there is 
some truth, the fundamental truth there about building healthy communities, that importance actually of playing to our strength. And you find that obviously within the business world as, as well. But I don't think, though, that it's the whole truth about being part of the body of Christ. I think being part of the body of Christ is not just about playing to our strengths and our gifting so that we have some kind of better performance. Because actually, I think that we're called to more than that. We are called in the church community to be involved in all kinds of things that maybe we aren't strong and gifted at, but to do it, we do that in order to develop some kind of Christ-like character, which means putting ourselves in challenging situations, which means that as God's people, in order to develop that Christ-like character, a key way in which we do that is we just get stuck in. In this chapter of Nehemiah, I think it sheds some light and truth about how communities function and about how they become strong and healthy. In the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, if you look through that list in Nehemiah chapter 3, very few really had a special gift for building walls. Many people in this chapter had special gifts, but their gifts on the whole were irrelevant to building walls. The walls were broken and the majority of the people in that community just got stuck in and they did what they could. And so in this list, we come across priests whose regular work was to pray and to lead worship at the temple, but they helped to build the wall. We find that jewelers helped build the wall, that goldsmiths and merchants helped build the wall. We find that perfume makers and administrators helped to build the wall. There were women involved as well as men. There were young people as well as old people. There were people, it seems to be, from Jericho and Tekoa and Gibeon and Mizpah, many who lived somewhere else, but they wouldn't benefit directly from the wall being built, but they helped to build the wall as well. How Nehemiah got everyone on side except for the nobles of Tekoa, who in verse 5 were a bit snooty about wall building, how he did it, we don't actually know. But I think it's clear that people didn't have to have a special gift to be an important part of this wall building community. You just needed to be able and willing to get stuck in and to take it from there. And I do think that in this text, there is a good principle here about how church communities can work well and flourish. Everyone needs to get stuck in. When I was in my mid-twenties, I started my first teaching job in Forest Hill. Prior to that, I'd been very active in uh, Christian leadership, in churches and in uh, a Christian union that I was part of at university. I started preaching uh, when I was 18. I led mission teams across Europe when I was 20. I was responsible for the Christian Union, which was like a quasi-church of 100-plus a, a young adults uh, when I was studying. I did think, actually, that maybe I was God's answer to the church. <laughs> I was quite arrogant in many ways, and some people might say that hasn't changed. But when, when I was a teacher, uh, we were part of a church in London that at the time, actually, was a pioneering church, planting congregations all across southeast London. 
And within the church that we went to, there were some of the best preachers in the country who kind of did the Christian conference circuit. There were worship leaders who had made best-selling worship albums. There were small group leaders who'd been leading small, group years, small groups for decades, and they were thriving. There were youth workers doing cutting-edge work in Peckham and in Sydenham. There were well-known evangelists who were part of that church, who over time had brought many people to Christ. And so within this church that we were a part of, there didn't really seem to be any room or opportunity for someone like me. But it was a place, I would say, where I learned an important lesson in humility. I learned an important lesson in terms of what it means about having value and worth before God. On my walk home from the school that I taught in to our little flat in Broccoli, I went past the church offices, which were on the South Circular. And one week in the church notice sheet, um, I'd always encourage you to read the church notice sheet, um, I saw a plea asking for someone to clean the church office toilets. Um, don't Google dirty toilets. This is the best picture we could get. Um, anyway, I felt prompted to do the toilet cleaning job. Partly, and don't judge me for my motives, I thought if I went to the church office every, day, uh, every week, I might get noticed by some of the church leaders. And they'd see how good I was with a toilet brush and they'd ask me to preach on a Sunday. <laughs> My motives weren't very godly. So every week, I then went um, to clean toilets on a Friday afternoon after my work at school. But what I discovered, though, was that the only person in the office at that time on a Friday afternoon was the assistant to the assistant church administrator. And the toilets themselves were tucked away down a corridor away from any of the offices. And so when I was cleaning the toilets, I saw no one. My plans were foiled. But as time went on, I learned an important lesson in humility. It doesn't matter how gifted or important you think you are, you're never too gifted or too important to clean toilets. I learned too that my sense of worth and value before God doesn't come from what I do and what I achieve, but it comes from the truth that I'm loved because I'm loved because I'm loved. You don't have to have a special gift to be a key part of a church community. You just need to get stuck in, especially where there is brokenness and mess. And I think that you play your part by bringing healing and restoration uh, and, and God's love and grace into a church just by getting stuck in. And if you don't know how to get stuck in, just pray this simple prayer. God, show me how to get stuck in and see what happens. There's some suggestions on your notice sheet. So the first lesson from chapter three is if you want your church community to thrive and flourish, just get stuck in. And if that means cleaning the toilets, just do it. If you need lessons, I can teach you. The second and uh, final thing from this chapter is that Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, if you read the whole thing through, is not mentioned at all in chapter three. 
There is another Nehemiah that's mentioned, the son of Azbuk, uh, but not the Nehemiah who we find was a butler to the king Artaxerxes and had the call and the vision and the wherewithal to get the wall built. He's not mentioned. And I think the reason he's not mentioned isn't because he's abdicated responsibility, but actually because Nehemiah, I think, is servant-hearted and humble. I think that Nehemiah recognised what US President um, Harry Truman once said, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. There's something, I think, about the hiddenness of Nehemiah in this chapter. He's not afraid of being hidden and out of sight. He just gets stuck in. I think that his hiddenness is part, a mark of his humility. Let's go now to Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel, which is far more interesting than Nehemiah chapter 3. And here we find the disciples, they're all vying for position and recognition when they come to Jesus and they ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe they're expecting Jesus to point to some of the heroes of old, like Elijah and Joshua and David and Solomon, people who are seen as strong and courageous and successful and were known. Maybe they thought these were the kind of people that they should imitate, so they might be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus actually, in his response to them, throws that whole notion of greatness out of the window as he calls a small child to himself. Now, in the original Greek, this child is actually an it. Not a he or a she, but an it. Most probably a girl. In some parts of the ancient world, children were almost seen as being subhuman until they reached puberty and were then available to be sexual partners. Girls especially suffered. And in the wider culture, in that time, in that place, it wasn't unusual for newborn girls to be thrown away like rubbish because they were expensive. Generally, children weren't seen and they weren't heard. They were hidden. They were viewed as the weakest, the most vulnerable and least significant human beings that you can think of. But Jesus takes his child to himself and he says this is what true greatness looks like. It's not about being known and strong and courageous and gifted and out at the front. It's about hiddenness and vulnerability and weakness and childlike trust. There needs to be this willingness to learn and grow where you don't think that you know it all. Tom Wright, in commenting about this particular passage, wrote this, Humility is what counts in God's kingdom, because pride and arrogance are the things which more than anything else in God's world distort and ultimately destroy life. Nehemiah, I think, exercised humility by being hidden and in many ways out of sight. But sadly, I would say that in our Western culture, hiddenness and humility are not necessarily characteristics that we come across a lot, quite the opposite. Recently, there was an article on the interweb about what children want to be when they grow up. And it was discovered that the desire for fame and fortune 
often came ahead of other professions like helping others, like working in medicine or being a firefighter. Being a famous celebrity was a key aspiration. In one article about the, uh, uh, these aspirations uh, for children, what we find is that many children wanted to be YouTubers and influences when they grew up. And the, the main reasons for that were fame and money. Presumably, we could say that these aspirations for fame and fortune are influenced by our celebrity culture that we live in, which is actually big business, and sadly has even crept into the church. We now have people who are famous just for being famous. Think about people like Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian and the whole family. As an interviewer once asked Kim Kardashian, he said, you are often described as being famous for being famous. He said, you don't really act, you don't sing, you don't dance. You don't have, and forgive me for saying this, any talent. <laughs> Harsh, but fair. We have celebrities who are famous for being famous. They don't excel at a sport, they've not made a great discovery, but they're endlessly promoted through social media and celebrity magazines, and we, the general public, can buy into it. What's not to like about a good Hello magazine? I have my own annual subscription. I can pass them on to you if you'd like to. Maybe there's something, though, in this celebrity culture that indicates something deep inside of us that many of us want to be known and recognized and seen. Humility and hiddenness aren't necessarily values that we aspire to in our Western culture. And as I've said, it's crept into the church as well. Recently, I was talking to someone who was checking out this church on a Sunday morning as a church they might come to. And they said to me, how do I get up there? They were pointing here. This is a dais, by the way. It's not a stage. If you call it a stage, I will punch you. <laughs> <coughs> And what they were, well, I may not. Um, what they were asking was, how can I get to preach and lead up front? And my response was time and relationship. They've not been back since. This desire to be known and remembered can also continue, I think, when we move on from a job or a role that we've been involved in or even after our death. There is, I think, an obsession, and I've noticed it in the church as well, about leaving a legacy, not a financial one. You're very welcome to leave financial legacies. Just speak to Derek. But a legacy where we want to be remembered by others when we are gone. We want to make a splash. We don't want to be forgotten. I've been on training courses about leadership within the church and asked the question, what will your legacy be in the church that you're in at the moment? My legacy here are uncomfortable chairs downstairs. That's as far as it goes. If you Google the question, what legacy are you leaving, you get 185 million results. They're not all about leaving a lasting impact upon the world, but many of them are. The top result was a chap called Tony Robbins. Who knows Tony Robbins? Yeah, the global coach who apparently helps you unleash your power from within. If he could find it, he's welcome to unleash it. Uh, he describes himself as a global entrepreneur, the number one New York Times best-selling author. 
He's a global philanthropist, and he is the nation's, i.e. the USA's, number one life and business strategist. You know, reading through his bio, I found it quite exhausting. But it reminds me, though, of Rick Warren, who, when he wrote about humility, said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'm not sure that Tony Robbins has read that quote. But how would you like to be remembered when you are gone? In many ways, it's not the right question to ask in God's kingdom because that attitude of wanting to be remembered when you are gone is very counter to the hiddenness and the humility that Jesus says counts in the kingdom. He says it's not about us and how we will be remembered, but it's about Jesus and how he will be known. The American theologian Stanley Havas, in a book called Cross Shattered Christ, he reflects on the last seven words of Jesus from the cross. And in reference to the thief on the cross, who in Luke 23 says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, to which Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Havas observes that in Western society, uh, we worry that we will die without a trace because there will be no one to remember the trace we were. So as a result, we live desperate, deadly lives in the hope that we will not be forgotten. And the idea is, is that we rush around looking for significance in the wrong place. Havas goes on to write um, that what, uh, what we think the, the thief on the cross was saying is this, please, dear Jesus, remember us. Ensure that our lives will have significance so that we will be more than bubbles on the foam of life. In life, generally, many don't want to be hidden and forgotten about. We want to be significant. We want to be known. In some cases, we want to be famous. We want to be remembered when we are gone because we fear that we are nothing in this life. Yet the challenge of Jesus, and I think this is hinted at in the life of Nehemiah as well, the challenge of Jesus is actually to live a life of weakness and vulnerability and hiddenness and humility. That's the challenge. We're not called to a life of pride and arrogance. Let me finish with two quotes. The first um, from Stanley Havas, who says this. He says, like... The thief on the cross, we can live with the hope and confidence that the only remembering that matters is to be remembered by Jesus. And how might Jesus challenge us to be remembered by him? Well, he said this, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We are called to live lives of humility and hiddenness. Would you like to stand? And I'd like to pray for us. Just a couple of things really to pray about. The first is, um, <coughs> is this God? Oh, I'm going all over the place now is God show me how to get stuck in. May we not be like the nobles of Tekoa. 
And, and the second thing, really, is to pray, help us to be more like Nehemiah and content to live lives of hiddenness and humility. So shall we pray? So, Father, we pray that in the life of this church community, you would help us to know how to get stuck in. But it's not about being up here, but it's actually about living lives of humility and service to others. And we pray that you would help us to be more like Nehemiah and help us to hold on to that truth that when all is said and done, the only one that we really need to be remembered by is Jesus. And we ask that in his name. Amen.